Now, today I'm going to talk about the West. Uh, uh, and uh, again, if you notice, just like uh, when I put the word South in the New South in my previous lecture in quotations, I put the word winning, as in winning the West, also uh, in quotations. And I think that will be explained uh, by this lecture. Now, the quarter century following the Civil War, the years between 1865 and 1890, uh, were the years the West was quote-unquote won. They were the years through which we define the West. Our image of the West, uh, derived from countless movies and TV shows and books and music, uh, our image of the West comes from this era. Even if you're like me, an Easterner uh, who has never ridden a horse, uh, the West is part of your heritage, part of our heritage. Because to a greater degree, perhaps, than any other region in the United States, the West is American, and the West is America. A distinctly American place with a distinctly American culture and history. But what was this history? And how was this history written? What did this history mean? Well, to put it in Western terms, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys? Well, until about 30 years ago, uh, there wasn't much of an argument about who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. Because the narrative of Western history, especially during these crucial years between 1865 and 1890, uh, was pretty much agreed upon by historians. And the most preeminent of these historians uh, was uh, the uh, one I've talked about uh, before in an earlier lecture, and the one that we read for today, Frederick Jackson Turner. Now, Frederick Jackson Turner, uh, who wrote about the West in the 1890s, okay, right after the period that I'm talking about, uh, Turner established the historical view of the West that would last until around the 1980s, so almost a century, a very impressive run for any historian. Turner, who was a University of Wisconsin pres uh, 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 professor, not president, professor, uh, advanced what might be called the heroic theory of the West. In this theory, the heroes were the uh, Western frontiersmen, the traders, the farmers, the cattlemen, the cowboys, who bravely pushed America's Western boundaries forward until they reached their natural limits at the Pacific. They were the people who made the idea of manifest destiny, and we've been talking about manifest destiny in our prior classes. They made manifest destiny not an idea, but a reality. Now, these heroic Westerners overcame all sorts of obstacles. A harsh and unforgiving environment, hostile Indians, lack of material necessities, disease, and generally, the fear of the unknown. They braved all this to bring, in Frederick Jackson Turner's view, civilization, quote-unquote, to a savage, again, quote-unquote, world. Civilization to a savage world. Now, these pioneers, Frederick Jackson Turner argued, embodied everything that was American about Americans. And in fact, 
argued Turner, they created a distinctive American culture that eventually affected all Americans, whether they lived in the West or not. And what were those characteristics? What were those American uh, uh, characteristics? Well, for starters, uh, these uh, uh, pioneers, these frontiersmen, were, in Frederick Jackson Turner's view, independent. They were on the frontier and not in some eastern city because of this independence. They didn't like other people telling them what to do. That's the essence, I guess, of being independents. They wanted to be on their own. They wanted to work for themselves. And here we can see the influence of the free labor philosophy, which, of course, I've spent so much time talking about. Uh, uh, and the free labor philosophy was central to this view of the West, the Frederick Jackson Turner uh, view of the West. These frontiersmen in, Jackson, in Frederick Jackson Turner's view uh, were also, in a related way, individualistic, as well as being independent, not only wanting to, to succeed by themselves, but often to be by themselves, often moving further and further west as soon as the area that they were in started getting crowded. And in Turner's view, and not surprisingly, they, these new west, these westerners, these frontiersmen, were democratic and egalitarian, just like in Turner's view, America itself was. Westerners were known for never putting on airs, never pretending to be something uh, that they were not, uh, 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 never being pretentious. Westerners believed in upward mobility, in bettering oneself, in opportunity. According to Turner, and this is a quote, they had a practical, inventive turn of mind. And another quote, a restless, nervous energy an energy and restless turn of mind that kept them always striving, always looking to improve themselves. In short, the Western mentality, which to Frederick Jackson Turner uh, was uh, uh, the American mentality, was an open and optimistic one based on liberty and opportunity for independent individuals where obstacles, like mountains, rivers, deserts, and Indians fell before the courage and inventiveness of the pioneer spirit. A spirit which was so important to Frederick Jackson Turner that with the passing of the frontier by the 1890s, the end of open and uncharted spaces in America, uh, you'll note that Turner starts off his famous article about the frontier by saying, well, the census of 1890 has just come out, and they say there's no more frontier. There are no more uninhabited areas. You know, with the end of the frontier, Turner, writing in the 1890s, wonders out loud whether the distinctly American virtues forged on the frontier, independence, individualism, inventiveness, opportunity, whether these distinctly American virtues would disappear as well. Now, whether they would or would not is not really our subject for discussion here. What is important is Turner's view of the story of the frontier as one of triumph and one of victory, a story of national greatness, a story of American greatness. And until around the 1980s, 
This was most historians' view as well of the West. But during the 1980s and into the 18, uh, in, 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 during the 1980s and into the 1990s, and also even into our own century, another more negative, even more sinister, if you will, historical view of the West began to take shape in the writings of a group of historians who quickly became known as the New Western Historians. Now, the most well-known among these New Western Historians uh, is a professor named Patricia Limerick, uh, uh, L-I-M-E-R-I-C-K, who teaches at the University of Colorado, although Eric Foner, whose work we've read a lot of this term, uh, might also qualify to, uh, as a new Western historian to the extent that he writes about the West. Much, must have, much of what uh, Foner writes about uh, uh, is, is, is about the North and South. But to the extent that Foner writes about the West, I think I, I would put him in the category of the, the new Western historians as well. Now, the new Western historians essentially turned Frederick Jackson Turner on his head the same Western landscape that Turner views in such rosy hues as a triumph of civilization over savagery or of individuals over the hostile environment or independence over the restraints of the East, the new Western historians instead see as a tragic one, a tragic history, a history of genocide, and cultural imperialism on the part of whites against Indians and also Mexican-Americans, Asians as well. A history of large corporations, mining companies, lumber companies, large farms capitalized by eastern banks, railroads. Uh, These large corporations dominating individuals and destroying their independence and their lives. And according to the New Western historians, essentially reproducing the class inequities of the East in a Western setting. The more things change, the more things remain the same. If Frederick Jackson Turner's story was about winners, the New Western historian's story is about losers. The farmers who suffered from high railroad freight rates and low crop prices. The miners who worked for low wages under dangerous conditions. The laborers who worked for other richer men their entire lives without ever acquiring land of their own. And perhaps most importantly to the uh, New Western historians, the Indians who were lied to, exploited, and ultimately robbed of their independence and dignity by the white man. The West of the New Western historians was a place where racism, Economic exploitation and gender biases were the norm. It was not a place for a man to start over, as it was for Frederick Jackson Turner, but a place where things were not that much different from the East or the South. A different physical setting, of course, because they're in the West, but the same grinding poverty, the same tragic exploitation as in these older regions. So who was right? Frederick Jackson Turner with his heroic view of the West or the New Western historians with their much darker view? Well, once again, as usual, both are right and both are wrong. But to see how, let's look at the historical record itself, which may present a more complex tale than either of them has allowed for. 
Now, in 1865, uh, it was fair to say that the American frontier began just over the Mississippi River, out past that uh, frontier line, not much further west than Kansas City, uh, uh, were thousands of miles of plains and grasslands and desert on which some 250,000 Indians and millions of buffalo roamed. 25 years later, in 1890, the West had changed so drastically. So many whites had come into the area. So much commerce and development had taken place there. And so many railroads crisscrossed it that the U.S. census taker, and this is what prompted Frederick Jackson Turner to write his article that we read for today, uh, the U.S. census taker announced that the frontier essentially no longer existed. Between 1865 and 1890, the population of the West more than quintupled to more than 8.5 million, about half of those immigrants. The number of farms more than doubled. It was about 30 times the amount of track mileage, railroad track mileage. The number of cattle and hogs doubled. And the output of corn, wheat, and oats nearly tripled, outstripping the population increase in the nation as a whole during this period. Yet, on the other hand, during this period between 1865 and 1890, acres of forests were cut down and grasslands plowed up, causing a massive uh, erosion, flooding, droughts, eventually, in fact, causing the ultimate drought in American history, the terrible Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Also during this period, the huge overproduction of farm products began to drive farm prices down, just as been uh, what was the case uh, in the South with cotton. And I talked about that a couple of lectures ago, you know, causing an agricultural depression in the West that lasted through most of the 1890s. Also during this period, huge mining and lumbering and meatpacking companies, as well as large farms and ranches financed by Eastern capital, sort of mega farms, employed thousands of Westerners in unskilled, low-wage, and often dangerous jobs, which in a mockery of the free labor myth of open opportunity, uh, which Frederick Jackson Turner certainly subscribed to, offered no chance for upward mobility. During this period also, millions of buffalo were hunted to extinction. And most significantly, the 250,000 Indians who had lived in the West were either dead or penned up on reservations. So the West then was a study in contrasts, in paradoxes. It allowed thousands of men who under other circumstances would have been landless to own land under the Homestead Act, which was passed during the Civil War in 1862, to give land parcels to settlers in the West. But it then placed them in a position of relying on the railroads, which had themselves been given uh, much free land, millions of acres in free land by the government, uh, relying, the farmers had to, on the, uh, on the railroads for their livelihoods, for the shipment of their crops to market. And it also permitted these farmers to fall victim to the railroad's unfair freight rates 
as well as to the take-it-or-leave-it pricing policies of grain merchants in Chicago or Kansas City, who had become the middlemen between the farmers and their ultimate customers, the consumers. It had allowed the cowboys to ride the range and driving cattle over the open plains, wild and free, the classic symbol of the American West, possibly the classic symbol of America itself, driving cattle to places like Abilene and Dodge City, where in another classic American tradition, the cowboys with their money burning the proverbial hole in their pockets would tear up the town. But then the West would take away that vaunted independence from the cowboys and turn them into underpaid and exploited ranch hands. With the extension of the railroads, which by the 1870s were crisscrossing uh, the plains. The first of many <clears throat> transcontinental railroads uh, was completed in 1869. Uh, these made cattle drives unnecessary. You could just put the cattle on railroad cars. You didn't have to drive them to a market. You could just uh, uh, ship them to market by rail. And then, of course, there was the rise of the huge predatory ranches, which made open-range grazing of cattle on which the cowboys depended impossible. The West had allowed some lucky prospectors, lured by the rumor of gold to small towns in California and Colorado, working by themselves to become rich beyond their wildest dreams, but also allowed others, less fortunate, to become mere employees, miners working for the large companies that soon took over these small towns and monopolized the mines. Companies that used hydraulic and strip mining techniques that were not only environmentally disastrous, but dangerous to, and exploitative of, their workers, their employees. And which turned the mining company towns into war zones of class strife, causing hundreds of strikes. In a Western version of the bloody labor wars that I talked about of the East, it is then almost impossible to generalize about the West, which, of course, is what historians are paid to do. Neither Turner nor the new Western historians capture the entire West in all its paradox and all its irony. But it's probably unfair to ask them to do so, as complex and as varied as the region was and is. Perhaps all we can say about it historically between 1865 and 1890 is that it embodied the themes of individual achievement and group exploitation that characterized the nation as a whole during this time. And thus, when both Frederick Jackson Turner and his critics in the New Western Historians argued that the West, for different reasons, was the most American of all the nation's regions, they were, in their own ways, both correct. But there was one aspect of Western history that was unique, one that the West did not share with any other region, and that obviously was the story of the Indians and how they were, depending on your perspective, either brought under control or subjugated. Now, when we last spoke of the Indians, it was the 1830s, and they had been driven across the Mississippi River over, the, over into the plains of the Dakotas, uh, as well as into Nebraska and points south and west. 
Uh, the Cherokees, along with other tribes, uh, uh, of course, having been driven out of Georgia by Andrew Jackson, were in their designated Indian territory in the present state of Oklahoma, where, during the Civil War, many of them made the major tactical mistake of supporting the Confederacy, a mistake that the federal government would not forget once the war ended. Now, except for the Cherokees, uh, most of these Indian tribes were nomadic, uh, roaming the plains in search of buffalo, their main source of food, clothing, shelter, uh, and as they increasingly came into contact with whites, their source of trade as well. But white settlers, of course, wanted much of this land for themselves. And as we know, despite the existence of treaties guaranteeing the, the land to the Indians, whites set out to get it with help from United States Army troops, uh, superior military power, and a strategy of the extermination of the buffalo as a means of denying Indians economic self-sufficiency, as well as burning of Indian crops and settlements. Now this time, unlike earlier in the 19th century, there would be no forcing the Indians farther west. Uh, the next step this time for the Indians would be the reservation. Now, the 1860s and 1870s featured a series of running battles involving U.S. Army troops, white settlers, and the most violent of the Plains Indians, the Sioux uh, and the Cheyenne, uh, which featured a Sioux massacre of white settlers in Minnesota in 1862 uh, after they had left their re reservation to reclaim their lands, uh, a massacre avenged by the largest mass execution in United States history, the hanging of 38 Sioux, and I would point out that this was during the administration of Abraham Lincoln. He signed off on it, although he pardoned a good number of them, but he did sign off on the largest mass execution in American history. Uh, and also the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre of uh, 200 Cheyenne Indians on their reservation by white settlers in Colorado, uh, a reservation the Cheyenne had been forced onto in the first place by a broken treaty. Now, U.S. troops and the Sioux battled for over a decade after the Civil War in the Dakota Territory. Uh, with the Indians slowly being overwhelmed by the Army's superior firepower, not to mention the growing number of white settlers coming into the area. The number of uh, whites in the Dakotas, uh, uh, Nebraska, and Kansas more than quintupled between 1860 and 1880. And the famous victory by the Sioux Warriors, Crazy Horse, and Sitting Bull over General George Custer at Little Bighorn in June 1876, uh, in which Custer's entire force of 225 men were killed, which is sometimes called Custer's Last Stand, uh, but might more accurately be labeled the Sioux's Last Stand, uh, uh, because uh, a U.S. Army General Philip Sheridan then took brutal revenge on them, uh, uh, crushing them militarily soon after Little Bighorn and herding them onto reservations in the uh, Dakotas with their attendant poverty and disease and alcoholism. Now, by the late 1870s, almost all the Indians west of the Mississippi were either dead or on reservations. It was either go there or starve, because the buffalo were gone in one of the great mass animal exterminations in history. Of the millions of buffalo that existed before the Civil War, 
uh, uh, only about 200, an amazingly low figure, remained by the early 1880s. Now, in a famous illustration of Indian resistance to the reservation and, uh, and also its ultimate futility, Chief Joseph of the Nesperce tribe, that's N-E-Z-P-E-R-C-E, the Nesperce tribe, led a desperate run for the Canadian border and freedom through Montana in 1877, just ahead of pursuing U.S. cavalry, a chase that covered hundreds of miles and which ended with his capture just short of the Canadian border. Trapped, starving, freezing, Joseph surrendered with a speech memorable both for its eloquence and for its quiet resignation in the face of overwhelming force, both military and cultural. It's in the textbook, but it's worth reading out loud. Joseph said, I am tired of fighting. Our chiefs are killed. The old men are all dead. It is cold and we have no blankets, no food. The little children are freezing to death. Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. And by the end of the 1870s, the military subjugation of the Plains Indians was complete, with the exception of the brief ghost dance revival of 1890, in which the Sioux were inspired by a vision of God destroying the white man and giving the Indians their land back, uh, but which was put down brutally by the army uh, at Wounded Knee in what is now South Dakota in a shootout that cost 150 Indian, uh, including many and women, children, their lives. Uh, that was the last battle between whites and the Plains Indians, and of course it's one that we will hear about uh, a little more uh, in a few minutes. Now the question for the victorious whites was what to do with the Indians on the reservations. And with the military question decided, what was now at stake was the survival of Indian culture, a communal, non-materialistic, and fiercely independent culture that was, to a great degree, incompatible with a white culture that was diametrically opposite, individual, competitive, materialistic. Now, the federal government decided, for reasons both altruistic and self-aggrandizing, to attempt to make the Indians into Americans and to eradicate their culture, uh, not through violence this time, but through the promise of largesse. The Grant administration, in its peace policy pronouncement of 1869 and in its refusal starting in 1871 to negotiate with or recognize separate Indian tribes, attempted to make Indians into eventual citizens of the United States through education on the reservation uh, 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 and ultimately grants of land carved out of the reservation to individual Indian families that would be owned by indiv in individuals and not communally by the tribes. Now, Grant's goal and the goal of the 1887 Dawes-Severalty Act, which gave each Indian family uh, 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 160 acres of farming uh, land, uh, Grant and the Dawes Act's goal was to make Indians Christians, make them English speakers, uh, make them non-nomadic, stay in one place, individual property owners, and commercial farmers, or, in a word, to make them white. But the Indians resisted, 
not militarily this time, but culturally. They resisted the idea of individual property ownership, which, ironically, was fine with white settlers, since under the Dawes Act, they could buy reservation land that was not being used by the Indians, something they did with great gusto, most notably in the famous Oklahoma Sooner land rush when the Indian territory was opened up to white settlement in 1889. Whites also cheated the Indians out of much of the land that they did acquire under the Dawes Act. All in all, the Dawes Act failed in its goal of civilizing Indians, of making them white, and of eradicating their culture. And Indian-white relations in the United States over the course of the 20th century have consisted of a long, ongoing effort by Indians to preserve their culture from outside encroachment, a struggle for which they have paid a high price in poverty, alcoholism, and despair, both on and off the reservation. Now, the story of the encounter between Indians and whites in the West in the latter part of the 19th century then was much like the larger story of the West itself. It was a story of triumph and progress that Frederick Jackson Turner would have celebrated, as well as one of defeat and exploitation that the more recent New Western historians would have mourned. And ultimately, of course, it was both. As much as we today decry what whites did to Indians in the 19th century, none of us, including, I would add, the new Western historians, would give up the life and the lifestyle that the triumph of whites over Indians in the 19th century helped give us. And history, of course, does not permit us to go back in time and start over. There are no do-overs in history. What we can do however, is understand through history what we have done, and, just as important, the assumptions underlying what we have done. And if we understand this, we may, without romanticizing the white pioneers, as Frederick Jackson Turner has done, or romanticizing Indians, as the new Western historians have done, understand ourselves as we confront similar questions of culture and of identity in our own time and in the future. <laughs>